Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Hi, I'm Ariana Maddox. Whether I'm on TV or Broadway, I live by two rules. Follow your dreams and always wear great shoes. That's why I love DSW. Must have shoes that pair well with whatever you've dreamed up for your life. Seriously, DSW has all the shoes you need for everything from errand days to date nights. And they're from top brands at prices you can totally brag to all your friends about. That's why I've partnered with DSW to create a collection of shoes I know you'll love. Because let's be real, whether I'm dancing on TV, teaching you how to make the perfect cocktail in my best-selling book or starting a whole new venture. It's all about the shoes. Find the shoes to do all the amazing things you do in my new collection at your DSW store or DSW.com. The following podcast contains barnyard language and some adult content. So maybe listen on headphones if you're at work or around small children. Now here's the show. Hey, Jolenta. Hey, Kristen. It's been one week since we lived by who baked my brie? And you know what that means. Okay, first of all, the book is Who Moved My Cheese. Second of all, it means it's time for another Buy the Book mini episode. Woohoo! Your life is going down the drain. You're in so much pain. You need some help. Ooh, self help. Buy the book, buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. By the book, by the book. That's right. It's time for another By the Book epilogue. This week, we are hearing from all y'all out there about our most recent book, Who Moved My Cheese, Kristen, by Spencer <laughs> Johnson. And before we get to this week's listener responses, we are, as per usual, going to put the book into historical context with the help of historian Professor Trish Travis. Reminder, Professor Travis is a 20th century U.S. cultural and literary historian with a focus on gender and popular culture. Her subspecialties are the history of medicine with a focus on therapy, addiction and recovery, and, of course, for our purposes, self-help. Professor Travis, how are you? I'm okay. How are you guys? Oh, Good. we're great. So excited to have you back with us because 
we have a lot of questions about who moved my cheese by Spencer Johnson. So many questions. (laughs) So first of all, Trish, if you could just put this book into historical context for us, that would be great. Okay, so this is a challenge. Uh, This is a very odd book. (laughs) Um, I had never read it before. I wasn't acquainted with it at all. It's the only one of the books in this uh, series that I didn't have some passing knowledge about. And I found it a real challenge to deal with this book, I was distracted by its bizarre physical format right? <laughs> uh, and its strange grade school level layout and language. It was a good thing it was so short because it took me a while to get my head around it. Yeah. In the last few episodes, we've talked more about sort of the cultural history of the decade, the manifestations and the ramifications of the 60s era campaigns for social justice, particularly justice in gender roles, um, and changed expectation in domestic relationships. To think about this book, I'm taking a little bit of a different historical tack, and I'm talking more about economic history. Right. Um, So that means I'm going to be a little more data-heavy than I have been in past episodes. But it's really changes in the U.S. economy that are driving this book, creating its market, and not incidentally, shaping the world in which we are reading it today, as well as when it was first published. So to think about the 1990s and its economic structure, we first need to think a little bit about the 50s and 60s. So I wanna take us back a couple of decades to think about the period right after the Second World War. Those years leading up to 1989 was the longest peacetime economic expansion in U.S. history. This occurred thanks in part to what historians call the post-war class compromise. And the post-war class compromise assumed that there was shared value in corporations getting smaller profits in exchange for giving the working class job security, opportunities for advancement, living wages, and stable, reliable benefits. And one of the things that goes along with it is the expectation, not necessarily of massive wealth, but of job security. Right. Now that we've talked about the 50s and 60s, let's talk about the 80s and 90s. Uh Uh-oh. This world that we just described came to an end in 1990. Uh, There had been other recessions during the post-war period, some of them quite severe. But the recession of 1990 was notable for the fact that it entailed what uh, historians call a jobless recovery. Mm. Uh, The U.S. economy lost 1.6 million jobs in 1990. Wow. And those jobs never really came back. This was the beginning of a set of economic restructurings. It had to do with a federal obsession with deficit reduction in the wake of social spending in the 60s and 70s, a backlash uh, generated under President Reagan against the social safety net and against taxation. Jobs start to come back in the 1990s after the recession ends, but when they come back, they're disproportionately low wage Mm. jobs, even if they're high skill. And there are jobs in sectors of the economy that are much more subject to economic fluctuations, particularly fluctuations in global markets. This sets the stage, some of your listeners may remember, for uh, Bill Clinton's campaign for president. His winning campaign slogan was, it's the economy, stupid. (laughs) Um, And that is what brought Clinton into the White House after the multiple years of the Reagan and Bush administrations. 
Clinton promised to address the economy, particularly the economy for uh, people who he called uh, regular middle class people who work hard and play by the rules. But his administration was not in a position or particularly interested in really rebuilding the post-war class compromise. Instead, he continued cuts to the social safety net and involved the U.S. in the North American Free Trade Alliance Treaty with Mexico and Canada right. in 1994, which contributed uh, enormously to the loss of manufacturing jobs. I'll reveal my political biases here and say that one of the reasons the post-war compromise could happen was because of the strengths of unions. There was corporate largesse and a belief on the part of the American ruling class or capitalist class that in a democracy, working people should have uh, access to home ownership, to health care, to vacations and things like that. There was a change in thinking at the top of the American pyramid, but a lot of that change was sort of emphasized or perhaps incentivized by the presence of strong labor unions in the U.S. during that time. That ended in the 90s. And as a result, by 1998, the year that this book comes out, we're pretty late in the decade by now, by the time this book appears. So by 1998, the typical American family is working six weeks more per year to have the same standard of living as they had in 1989, before the recession hit. That's across the class spectrum, except for the folks at the very top of the economic period. Mm. They're working less and having more. So in this decade, we have a basically a reversal of the set of ideas about American middle class life that had been put into place in the 50s and 60s. The reversal didn't happen overnight during the 1990s. It was put in place with a set of social policies in the 1980s, and then it advanced during the 90s. But by the time this book comes out in 1998, we're looking at a very different set of expectations for the average American working person than had been possible even a couple of decades ago. So this book is not subtle. It's not complex. It has one idea that it reiterates over and over again with illustrations of cheese uh, and large print just to make sure that you get the point. Mm. And I think that's because this book is aimed at the people who are about to lose their jobs. Yeah. Uh, and it's telling them, you need to get over it. You're not entitled to that job. You're an arrogant jerk if mm. you believe you have a right to cheese. And they, these never named they who are responsible for moving the cheese, they're going to be free to move your cheese whenever they feel like it. And when they do, the right thing for you to do is turn that frown upside down, mm. get off your lazy ass, and run your ass around the maze looking for wherever they put the cheese this time with a smile on your face the whole time and no questions. Mm -hmm. So that's a lesson that this book is really interested in importing not to managers so much, although yeah. to middle managers who are in danger of losing their cheese distributing place in the maze, but <laughs> to workers. Right. And I think that the 90s was a time when we really are moving into the eco economic situation that we are in now, right. which you refer to in your, uh, in your comments, Kristen, which is basically a you should work for free and be happy to do that. Mm -hmm. This 1998 is the beginning of the gig economy and the beginning of 
wage insecurity, job insecurity, and income inequality as the new normal. So Ugh. you know what my two words are for this book? Yes. Fuck you. Oh! Fuck you. Yes! Nice. Love it. Love yes. it. Can, can I also just make it personal for a second here? The time this yes. book came out was when I was entering the workforce. Oh, that must have felt so Ugh. shitty. And it was a total fuck you moment. It was. And yeah. as a tiny little, like, Gen, Gen X is a very small generation. And I think people forget about how bad it was for all of us back then. That was not cute. Because we had the boomer saying, well, I've had my job for 30 years. Yeah, right. Just and, do what I did and be a company yeah. man. And, and, you're like, and then I the can't. millennials came after us and said, for, for the first time, we have to deal with struggle. And it's like, no, we've been fucking yeah. stuck in this for our entire adult lives and it's so bad yeah. and mm. nobody sees how bad it is mm -hmm. it's been going on yeah. for 20 years and it's so bad yeah i think this book feels so incredibly dated yes. in a way and yet it is so incredibly relevant because it's really setting the terms mm -hmm. by which the economy of the last 25 years has unfolded um, it just really is, it was so hugely successful. People talked so much about it. And what it is doing is normalizing a way of being and an economic order, which are not normal. They are the constructions Thank you. of a group of policy thinkers and a group of capitalists who want people to think that this is normal and want people to think that this is the only way to live. The way the book is set up, it makes it seem like cheese or or work or whatever, like literally comes from God. It's like unknown where uh, yeah. it comes from, but it's like the way of the universe where it's like, no, 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 no. We made this up, right? No, that's what's so that's what's so creepy. And if we were if I were in a class, we'd spend a lot of time going through the different sections and circling the places where they move the cheese. Who are they? Exactly. Who are these people who are moving cheese? Who gave them the license to move the cheese? And why doesn't somebody bite their fucking hand the next time they mm. reach into the maze to mm. move the cheese? Great. Um, and I think that um, there's just something so sinister to me in retrospect about the sort of simplistic, childish tone, the parable, the fact that it looks like a workbook for grade schoolers. It's aimed at people who do not necessarily have a particularly low literacy level and told in this way that they are meant to interpolate themselves as the good character who's happy to run around the maze looking for new cheese and not the bad character who just wants a handout. Um, and that is so sinister and stealth a way mm. to undo the work that labor organizers and social activists and social justice advocates and the legal profession had done during the early part of the 20th century to bring a modicum of security and parity to the American economy in the aftermath of the depression. This book is evil. I don't ever want to talk about it again. Yes, okay. yes. yes. Professor Travis. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Professor Travis truth teller, brainiac, historian. <laughs> we love you. Thanks, y'all. We'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Okay, sounds good. All right, we are going to take a quick break, but stay with us, because when we come back, we're going to hear from all of you about cutting cheese. I mean, who moved my cheese? <laughs> that sounds great.
Here's to the best spring ever in this season's must-have shoes. Find all the styles you need from brands you love at amazing prices. Right now at DSW. Update your closet with colorful sandals made for sunny days. Fresh sneakers, perfect for spring looks. And sporty soles ready for new adventures. Whatever you're up to this spring, DSW has the exact right pair for the occasion. Shop must-have spring shoes at your DSW store and DSW.com. We're back with listener responses to Who Moved My Cheese. So many of you out there wrote in this week. So many of you have read this book and encountered it. I was shocked. Wow. I mean, this might be the most responded to episode we've had all season. Yeah, and definitely not the one I was expecting at all. (laughs) What I love is we heard from some listeners who had really good experiences with this book. Uh, Anne wrote us to say... I read this early in my marriage and had my husband read it, too. It isn't perfect, but gave us newlyweds a common language to discuss change. I've had a framed version of the book's quote, What would you do if you weren't afraid, on my desk for the last 18 years. I love that. That quote was one of my favorite things about the book. Yeah, maybe one of the only things I liked about the book. Yeah, you know, actually, I heard that quote, I think, in, like, some sort of old podcast interview with, like, Wyatt Cenac. And I thought he came up with it, sort of like the time I said, live your best life, and my husband thought I invented that saying, not Oprah. (laughs) That saying, what would you do if you weren't afraid, is literally what got me started thinking about by the book. Whoa, really? Yeah, because I was was like, I'm obsessed with self-help. What would I do if I weren't afraid? I guess I'd just try to do it and then, like, force people to watch it. Wow. And then it turned into listening. And, and the they're show doing was born. it now. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, and hard agree. That is a very good quote. Yes. Up next, I'd like to talk about the listener responses we got from people who found the book to be maybe a little confusing, not so helpful. <laughs> we got a lot of those. Yeah. Tabia says, listening to the Cheese Maze story at the beginning of the podcast, I thought, is this what psychedelic drugs feel like? When it was explained, it still only barely made sense. The title and analogy of the book are so astoundingly terrible. I can't wait for the cultural context next week when I find out that the 90s had a period of cheese mania and that this would totally have made sense to people back in the day. Full disclosure, Tabia, we had a really hard time putting that summary together. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it. Then Joe Lenta worked with me to rewrite it. And then Nora— And then Nora said, this makes no sense. Can you rewrite it again? Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's not just you. We were doing our very best to make that sound logical. You should have seen it before we got all the help from Nora on it. It was way worse before yeah. that. It, when we first wrote the script, it looked like an in-writing version of people trying to explain one of the early— cartoons from Sesame Street that are just all visual, but somehow we're trying to, like, describe it in words. You know, it's like the one, two, three, four, five, six, six seven, eight, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. If we had to write out a description of that and read it to you, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> Gibberish. And like we were on drugs. I will say, I was alive in the 90s. I do remember cheese becoming a big thing. That is when all the cheese shops, I feel like, sort of started, yes. right? Like, it was on trend to ha- like that's when the like cheese and nut boards really took off yeah. i think <laughs> we're trying to go back there and i can't wait all right that was a bad tangent but speaking of bad let's talk about bad personal experiences with the book the vast majority of you who wrote in this week had really really bad experiences with this book yeah uh here's one from cynthia she says at my first job out of college the book was given to all staff during a big meeting 
Then, we found out we were getting a new CEO, and there were going to be a lot of changes coming. At the time, I thought the book was cheesy, oversimplistic, and really patronizing. Those changes ended up being layoffs, restructuring, new hires and upper management, and eventually me feeling forced to quit the job. That sucks. God. At least the good thing about that book is it's sort of a red flag. If you see it come out, you can be like, oh, well, I should bounce now. Let me contact my attorney about severance packages. Yes. yes. Farewell. Oh, gosh. Ugh, that, is, that sucks. And, you know, thank you for putting the word cheesy in quotes, Cynthia. Yes. I appreciate that. Yes. And, Cynthia, you're not alone, Mm-mm. by the way. Lots and lots of other people wrote in with similar stories. Yeah. Heather said... I had a boss make everyone read this when I worked in the service industry. They weren't firing us, just making a bunch of crappy policies and wanting us to embrace change versus protest exploitation. Yeah. A lot of the book seems to be saying that, like, just follow the cheese wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. Just follow it. I mean, Don't worry about whether or not the cheese is actually, like— really horribly processed Velveeta or if they're going to try to force something down our throats that's not edible. Yeah, or if you're lactose intolerant and, like, cheese isn't your thing. Yeah, any of those things. Now, some people had experiences with the book that had nothing to do with work. Marie says, the leaders of the teen girls group at my church read it to us over the course of a month. As a maybe 12-year-old, I thought the metaphor was cheesy and didn't really soak in a lot of the implications. Turns out it was their way of announcing that they were going to stop the teen girls group. So many levels. Here's a book about kowtowing to the man to say the man's shutting down your group and uh, kowtow to it. Yeah. Also, I mean, what I think is interesting here is she was maybe 12 years old, she Mm -hmm. says. A lot of other people wrote in this week to say they also were exposed to this book when they were just kids, little kids. I mean, the formatting does lend itself well to children. (laughs) And there was a cartoon of it that was shown in some schools. Unfortunately, that cartoon was shown to a number of adults, we heard also. Some teachers so demeaning. Yeah. Some teachers wrote in to say that they were forced to teach this as part of their curriculum to kids. But, I mean, as you said, Jolenta, maybe it lends itself better to kids than to adults. I mean, I feel like if this were given to a kid to explain, like, actual acts of God and things that are not within someone's control, like, that could help, you know? And, like, kids have to deal with it. Allegories, mice, cheese, they can help with that. But if it's about, like, treat someone's bad leadership decision like the word of God, like, not Mm, good. Yeah. Oh, we have to read this letter we got from Lori. It is one of my favorites. Lori says, I used to work at a used bookstore, and so many people donated copies of Who Moved My Cheese. You could build a pretty sweet fort out of the stacks we amassed. It got so bad, we eventually had to stop taking copies. However, some people just really, really wanted to get rid of it. After I told one gentleman we couldn't take any more copies for donation, he nodded curtly, then asked casually if he could take his copy to the dumpster behind our store and set it on fire. (laughs) I reminded him it probably wasn't a great idea to start a fire behind a building that was literally full of flammable material. He said that was fine, and I watched as he proceeded to walk across the street to a park, set the book on fire, throw it forcefully into a trash can, and watch it burn to ash. Now that I know the book was a common gift before restructuring, quote-unquote, this story makes so much more sense to me. I thought he was really angry about cheese. Oh, Lori. The insights that bookstore workers and librarians give us on the trends of books, I just love hearing those. Yes, seriously. Also, I just love the glimpse you get into people's lives through their books. You know, like this guy was going through it. Or like, I love a book 
that everyone wants to get rid of so much that used bookstores are like, no more. We're like, we don't want who moved my cheese. We don't want the scarlet letter. We don't care who gave it to you. Like, don't want it. All right. A lot of you also wrote in to talk about the bigger implications of the book beyond your own personal experiences. And this one here starts with the personal experience and then moves into those bigger implications. Chris says, my stomach did a little twist when I heard this book announced. I came to it, like many, as a gift from HR to Mm -hmm. assist us during corporate restructuring. I found the book's prolonged explanation of metaphor and allegory particularly insulting. It was clear to everyone that this book could easily have been entitled, You've Lost Your Job. Especially frustrating was that it ignored its titular question, Who exactly moved my cheese? The lab assistant? The shareholders? The new CEO? Cheese just wasn't being moved. It was being eaten. The mice never questioned the maze. I'd love to see a rewrite where the mice jump the walls, trash the lab, and yes, smash the patriarchy. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so yeah, much. Love Chris. it. Love it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Some, who the fuck some my cheese? One percent is eating all your fucking cheese. They're not moving it. Spoiler: They're eating it and giving it to their kids. Yeah. But who moved it? Who? Who? Mm, act of God. Oh God. I love this letter we got from Allie, who says, I read a great article about workers being blamed for production issues. Who moved my cheese? Reminds me of that. Not successful in business, then adapt. Just sounds like blaming the individual for what could be collective or systemic problems. Yes, being flexible and adaptable is a noble quality, and useful even. But systems also should adapt and respond to human needs. How does that happen? It's a million-dollar question someone should write a book about. Someone should do that. Yes. Allie, can you write it? Yes. Allie, just write that book for us, please. We'll live by it if you write that book. Do it. It'll be called Who Forced Cheese and a Maze into My Life. I don't want to live in a fucking maze. No. Maybe that's the name of the book. Ooh, I like it. (laughs) But here's an idea. Some of our listeners think we shouldn't blame the book. It's not the book's fault. Yes. Vanessa, for example, says, In all fairness to Johnson, I don't believe when he wrote this that he knew it would be weaponized in the workplace. I truly feel sad for him that he was trying to help, but instead his work was used to tell people hurting to essentially suck it up, buttercup. I mean, how much of the book's popularity was derived by its purchase by management in bulk for people who would have never purchased it themselves? Oh, Vanessa. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean— According to his backstory, it was coming from a good place. I mean, this guy clearly wanted to help people. He wrote this. He wrote children's books and shit. But also, like, I don't know. Yeah. It must suck when something you make is used by the wrong people. It's like weaponized by the man. Yeah. Uh, Kristen, a lot of people also wrote in talking about what you went through uh, during this book. All your, your work stuff. Yeah. Tarsla wrote to say... When listening to Kristen's struggle with saying no to clients, I felt very much seen. I've been working as a freelancer for seven years, and I still grapple with saying no or asking to be fairly compensated. We're all bringing value to these people. Otherwise, they wouldn't contact us in the first place. But every time I do say no or stand by my pricing, I never regret it because ultimately these weren't the right clients for me. It's best to have a handful of people who truly value what we do instead of a bunch of clients who don't. Go, Kristen. Go, Dean. Oh, thank you so much, Tarsala. I also love what Stephen says to pretty much sum this up. When people ask me to do work for free or for exposure, I have a mantra, people die of exposure. That is so good. Yeah. So good. Nail on the head. Yeah, and I think I 
you know, it took me a while to come around to that because during the first year of freelancing, my general feeling was say yes to everything. Say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. It's your first year doing this. Build as many contacts as you can. We had just read Gear of Yes. <laughs> yes, say yes, 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 yes. And so I said as much yes as I could. But yeah. I think now that I'm in my and second year— And it set year, a great foundation. Yeah. But now that I'm in my second year, I really can say— no, sometimes yeah, I really take can a say and be like, "What's actually on my plate? What can I handle? What do I want to work on?" Yes, that's a very important thing to think about. What do I want to work on? Yeah. And if I want to work on it, maybe that makes it worth it if I'm being paid less. But overall, I shouldn't be getting paid less. No, ideally not. Yeah. We also got a voicemail from Mora, who had a response to your story, Kristen. Hi, Kristen and Jalenta. This is Mara. Um, I just listened to the episode "Who Moved My Cheese." And as someone who was a baby in the 90s, I had actually never heard of the book. Um, But I just recently in the last year went through a lot of change in my life. I got engaged, got married, moved across the country, graduated from graduate school, and started my first full-time job. So I was kind of looking forward to hearing about a book um, that was all about change and dealing with change. Um, But I actually found that I liked Kristen's advice better than the book's advice. Um, the idea that the cheese will always be there or the cheese will still be there when you get back. With so much change, I think I prepared myself for a lot of it, but I found that what I really needed was to be reminded that, you know, my partner is still my partner. The person I moved here with is still the same person that loves me, even though I'm leaving my current job and moving to a brand new job that I have no idea what to expect. I'm still the same hardworking person who, you know, is good at making friends with others. So sometimes in change, what you really need is the reminder that some things will still be the same. So thanks so much for saying that, Kristen. Yeah, for me, the cheese was there when I got back. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, depending on what we're talking about, the cheese will still be there. Like, if we have to go away for work for a while and come back, hopefully our partner will still be there. Mm -hmm. Um, The cheese might have aged a bit, or it might look different, mm -hmm. or it might not be the cheese you were expecting, but, like, something will be there. Or you'll make some cheese. Yeah, or your home will still be there, or your friends will still be there. Not everything is going to constantly be in motion and move all the time, Mm -hmm. even though the book kind of suggests we should always be prepared for change to happen. Not everything all the time is going to change. Yeah, and you're, like, allowed to live your life. Yes, and not. Like exactly. frantically sniff out change everywhere. Yeah. Oh, my God. Where's the cheese? Where's the cheese? Where's the cheese? Where's the Find cheese? Find it. It was always there. All right, Jolenta, let's move on to you. Yeah. A lot of people really connected with your story this past week also. And Jess wrote in with this. I love Jolenta saying it's not my problem. I also have family members who often create havoc and constantly try to pull everyone into their messes. And my mom likes to say, not my circus, not my monkeys. Just a sillier way to say, as Jolenta says, that's not my problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also enjoy anything to do with rodeos. Like, (laughs) I've already been to that rodeo. (laughs) You know, any sort of saying like that, like, the more the merrier. Like, literally keep them coming. Maybe I'll make some sort of collage or art piece. Yes, yes. But I've always liked that saying, too. Not my circus, not my monkeys. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, We've got some thoughts on cheese and therapy. And as always, we will be announcing next week's book. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today for generations to come.
Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Here's to the best spring ever in this season's must-have shoes. Find all the styles you need from brands you love at amazing prices. Right now at DSW. Update your closet with colorful sandals made for sunny days. Fresh sneakers, perfect for spring looks. And sporty soles ready for new adventures. Whatever you're up to this spring, DSW has the exact right pair for the occasion. Shop must-have spring shoes at your DSW store and DSW.com. We're back with some final thoughts on cheese and therapy. My two favorite subjects. (laughs) Zell says, I loved Kristen's reminder at the end of the last episode that some changes might be harder to deal with and require therapy, not just an extended cheese analogy. I remember reading this book in high school when I was really, really depressed and being unable to get out of the self-criticism that I was too much like hem and haw. I wish self-help books came with a disclaimer. Like, if you find yourself over-identifying with the negative examples, you might just need a therapist. Great. 100% yes to that. I mean, sometimes I just feel like we mention it too much, but I'm not—you know what? No, we don't. See a therapist if you want to see a therapist. I wish everyone could try it. I wish it could be free. Another thing I've been thinking about a lot is peer support groups and, like, finding support groups. Those often are cheaper, if not free. Mm -hmm. I'm applying to some support groups right now. Nice. Good. Yes. There are ways to get support that are cheaper but, like, are not in the pages of a book but involve face-to-face interaction with people who, like, may have more training than some authors and issues. I love that you're doing that, Jolenta. I mean, support comes in so many different forms, and it's out there for all of us. And I hope that everyone out there knows that we're cheering for them. And someday, maybe all therapy will be free and mandatory, and then we will live in utopia. (laughs) Well, speaking of utopia, Kristen, let's announce our next book, because maybe, who knows, living by it will get us to a utopian society. Oh, we shall see. Our next book is... The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are by Brene Brown. Will the gifts be gift wrapped? Do I have to speak the love language of receiving gifts to receive this gift? What if you're Kristen and you're perfect? Does the book apply? I'm not perfect, but listen next week to find out. And that's it for this mini episode of By the Book. Huge thank you to our amazing production team at Stitcher, our producer, Nora Ritchie, our engineer, Andy Christens, our chief content officer, Chris Bannon, and our executive producer, Daisy Rosario. Thank you to Professor Travis herself for just being fantastic all the time. Thanks also to Nate Wyda, who composed our theme song, Jared Arnold, who produced this season's new version of the theme song, and our very own producer, Nora Ritchie, for singing the theme song. Reminder, check out our other podcast. It's called We Love You and So Can You. It's a makeover show in a podcast form 
where we tell other people how to live their lives and hopefully help them through a predicament or explode their lives and we just listen in. <laughs> also, please stay in touch. Let us know if you've lived by Who Moved My Cheese or any other books we've lived by. Also, send us any suggestions for future books for us to live by. Our email address is kristenandjolenta at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at ByTheBookPod, at G and at Kristen Meinzer. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, get your voice heard on one of our mini episodes, give us a call at 302-49-BOOKS. That's 302-492-6657. And don't forget to rate us and review us wherever you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, what have you. It helps other people find the show. It helps us stay alive. And if you haven't already... Tell a friend about the show. Tell a boss who fired you about the show. Tell the stupid HR director and the head of that girls' youth group. Tell them to listen to the show. And obviously tell your cheesemonger to listen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too. Until next time, I'm Jolanta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Two words being fuck you blew my mind. Trash. She broke her own format and I loved it. Stitcher. Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone. Solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more.